We're down to the last four weeks of this series that we've been doing for a long time now. You might remember when we began it about a year ago that I mentioned that it's, it's pretty rare for churches to preach this book front to back. It's not common for both Eastern or Western churches to walk systematically through a book like 2 Corinthians. It's not to say that people aren't familiar with 2 Corinthians. There's all sorts of greatest hits of Paul in this book. There's all sorts of passages that would be super familiar to you, especially if you grew up in the church. There's passages like what we find in the center of the book, Do Not Be Unequally Yoked, which is like the go-to youth group, don't date your non-Christian boyfriend verse. Um, There's passages uh, like we have this treasure in jars of clay, which became the name of this popular Christian band sometime a while back, and I I can't even name a single song by them. Uh, but, yeah, Matt Ryan is ashamed of me right now. Uh, but, but you hear that, and you go, I've, I've heard of that before. Or you have this passage that is a little bit later in the book that talks about how on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This incredible statement about what is happening at the cross, what God is doing in Jesus. It's something that if you've grown up around the church, it's going to be familiar to you even if you don't necessarily know where to place it in the wider scope of Scripture or the book of 2 Corinthians. Our text for the evening is pretty similar in that regard. It's actually this passage that you've probably heard split right down the middle. You've probably heard it fragmented. The first half is something that people mention as one of the weird things in the Bible that we don't know what to make of. And then the second half is one of these things that's often quoted to people in the midst of dark seasons, in the midst of suffering, as this way of sort of encouraging them to carry on in the face of hardship. And yet, they're normally fragmented. You don't normally hear that these two passages are actually part of the same book. They're part of the same thought on the part of the Apostle Paul. And yet, what I want to argue is that when we actually let what Scripture has joined together speak together, it gives us this vision of the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus that is profoundly practical, that, that has its boots on the ground of reality, that, that causes us to value all the more the fullness of the scope and riches of what, what God has done in Christ. You, you might remember last week that Paul hits his breaking point in terms of his frustration with these false teachers. I called it the world star hip-hop moment because you see all these videos on YouTube of these kids being bullied and someone keeps messing with them in class and then finally the overweight kid snaps and he picks up the football player and smashes him over a desk. And it's kind of like what happens here with Paul where he's, he's finally so fed up with what's going on that he snaps and he steps into this portion of 2 Corinthians where he's boasting. He, he starts by listing his credentials as a Jewish man, that he's an offspring of Abraham. He lists his religious affiliation and how particularly righteous he's been keeping the Jewish law. And then he turns the boasting on his head, and then he just starts listing all the bad things that have happened to him. Here's how many times I've been beaten. Here's how many times I've been shipwrecked. Here's how many times people have thrown rocks at me and tried to kill me. And he starts boasting the sort of things that nobody would be proud of or include in like a status update. And then he moves to our text for the evening and takes an interesting turn. So let me read it for us. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to the visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. 
but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul starts this section of 2 Corinthians by describing this anonymous man who is given the experience by God of seeing incredible things. Things that he says are, are so incredible that no man can utter them. But he keeps talking about this anonymous man in, in a way that, that might be confusing. Who is it that Paul is talking about? Well, we should just say this up front. Just about everybody that I've looked into, Christian or not, agrees Paul is talking about himself. And Paul is describing an experience that he has had. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of if you've ever gone to your friend for advice and you, you say, hey, uh, so I know this guy who is, and then you insert your personal experience there. You don't want people to quite know it's you because maybe they'll look down on you or maybe they'll give you advice that's not actually good advice because they're your friend and they don't want to tell you something that's going to be hard for you to hear. Paul kind of does this here because there is this anxiousness, there's this concern on his part about sharing this experience that he's had 14 years ago, but it's pretty clear that it's his experience because when he gets to the thorn, he says, I was given the thorn because of these revelations. And so the thorn is directly connected to what has been seen in this experience. And it is, it's kind of a strange portion of scripture. He talks about the, the third heaven and, and he talks about, I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. I'm not sure what happened, uh, but I know that it happened. And, and this is probably helpful to understand as we're kind of walking through it. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word for heaven has an incredible amount of elasticity. So, like, there's a portion in a narrative about one of uh, David's sons, and he's David or Solomon's son. He's riding on his horse, and his hair gets caught in the tree, and it pulls him off his horse, so he's hanging by his hair in this tree. It's super unpleasant. Probably make for, like, a rated R movie, uh, but Christians don't make rated R movies for some reason. And so he's hanging there, and the text actually says he's suspended between heaven and earth. He's only like 10 feet off the ground, maybe, maybe less than that. And yet, in sort of the way that the Hebrew people speak, anything that's not touching the ground is, in some sense, um, in the heavens, because anything that's not below me is, is in some way above me. But, but then they'll use the term heaven to describe this, what we would say is space, the, the stars, the place where the planets, the sun, and the moon are. And then they'll use the term heaven again to describe the specific dwelling place of God. And so... In the Hebrew world, when you say heaven, you almost have to qualify. Well, which one are you talking about? Are you talking about just anything off the ground? Are you talking about where the sun, the moon, and the stars are? Or are you talking about the dwelling place of God? And so that's how Paul designates it. I didn't go to space. I wasn't just like 10 feet off the ground. No, no I, I witnessed the dwelling place of God. I, I entered into this place where God is. 
He says, I don't know if I just saw a vision. I don't know if it happened physically. I, I don't know, but, but this is what happened. And yet, just based on the fact that he doesn't want to talk about himself, he wants to just say, yeah, I know a guy who did some things that were kind of cool, and they were really cool, and I'll definitely tell you about that, but I don't really want to talk about that. There's this hesitancy that, that causes me to ask why. And that's, that's kind of what I always do when I get ready to preach, is just go, why'd you say that? And I, I think there's a couple reasons why he is sort of at pains to not linger on this issue, and it actually becomes really instructive for us. Because think back to the beginning of the series. At the very beginning of this, a long time ago, I laid out, here's all of the criticisms of Paul that he's answering almost nonstop in this letter. One of them that we, that we haven't come back to recently, but is very much behind this statement, is that people are saying, Paul, you don't do enough miracles. Paul, you don't have enough miraculous experiences. Paul, you don't see enough visions. Paul, you, you don't have enough supernatural aspects to what you're doing for this to really be the work of God. But all of our fake teachers, they see visions all the time. And they're doing miracles 24-7. So we're going to go with them because God's probably in the business of doing more crazy stuff than what he seems to be doing with you. And so Paul sort of mentions this and, and he's timid about it. He's like, hey, you know, just so you know, about 14 years ago, I saw some, some incredible things that, that no man can speak of, and yet he doesn't want to linger on it. Be because for the Corinthians, they already think that the mark of a legitimate Christian life is crazy, supernatural, over-the-top, visions, healings, the whole nine yards. And so if Paul's going to defend himself based on that, the only thing that that's going to do is cause them to treat other Christians who haven't experienced that as second-class citizens. And so he wants to be careful about how much time he spends on that. And that's actually super instructive for us in our day and age. Because I realize we're all coming from, from very different backgrounds, coming from different church experiences. We've all gone to different colleges or are in different colleges or said, bump college, it's theft. Or, or whatever we've said. But, but there is a really strong current that, that can catch us up to where we think that the Christian life is consistently and perpetually marked by, by a camp high that just gets better and better the more you walk with the Lord. There's a sense in which we can become so caught up in the miraculous workings of God, the things that are uh, obviously supernatural, that are obviously over the top, that can, we can think that God is not at work when these things are not happening. We can expect that somehow every service involves speaking in tongues, and every service there's a miraculous healing, and every service there's a wicked Satanist serial killer who professes Christ, and every service this and this and this, and these extravagant things happen. And when they happen, we say things like, man, God showed up. But did he show up at the Lord's table when nothing crazy happened? Does he show up when his people come together around his word and, and just the average Christian housewife or, or single mom is just convicted of her sin and repents? The answer is absolutely. Don't, don't miss this. I am not the sort of person who thinks that those things don't happen. I, I am open and have seen in, in my own life God move in ways that, that I would say constitute the miraculous. I believe that he heals today. I'm not convinced that tongues have ceased. I do believe that God can speak to people in direct ways. And yet, 
The primary experience of the Christian life is not these things that are over the top. It is God's faithfulness in the midst of ordinary, boring, unimpressive life and the difficulty that comes with living in a fallen world. That is the primary mark of the Christian life. And so when we come together every week, You've got people from different ethnic backgrounds. You've got people from different socioeconomic statuses. You've got people who voted for people that other people hate in this last presidential election. Just don't make that public so we don't have a fistfight in the back. You've got people who have all sorts of diversity of opinions and backgrounds and experiences. You've got people who are single. You have people who are divorced. You have people who would say it's complicated on their Facebook status. We are gathered together around the word of God, convicted by our sin and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. God showed up just by virtue of the fact that we all are here. A single miracle doesn't need to happen. We don't need to have visions. We might. It's possible. But Paul doesn't want to major on this because he wants them to recognize that the Christian life is not primarily built on the exceptional. It's built on God's faithfulness in the midst of ordinary pain and ordinary life, which is what Paul turns his attention to after this. And so he says in relation to this vision about which he knows a guy. He says, So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we should be honest. This is, this is the passage that you've probably heard a whole bunch, especially when something bad's going on. Well, yeah, no, I know. That sounds terrible. Good thing, you know, his grace is sufficient for you. Uh, good thing his power is made perfect in your weakness. No big deal that you just... I don't know, had a car wreck and lost your leg or, or whatever it may be. This is sort of the cliche passage for people in the midst of suffering. Paul talks about his suffering being this thorn. And, and we should, should be honest about the fact that we don't know what the thorn is. Now, now some people have speculated. There's certain people who say, well, maybe this is Paul's deteriorating eyesight. And they would base that on the fact that Galatians says, see what large letters I write to you with. Like he's writing with large letters because his eyesight's going bad and that's a thorn in his flesh because he's got to keep writing letters. I don't totally buy that, but that's one argument. Other people would say that it's some sort of chronic pain, maybe as the result of him being tortured for the gospel. Other people would say that maybe it's some spiritual struggle with lust or anxiety or doubt. Other people have said that it might actually just be a person. It might be a Judaizer that he describes in his other letters who's been following him from city to city and trying to undo the work he's doing in each of these churches. But everybody who speculates on this generally concludes, yeah, that's my best guess, but I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea what this actually is. And I actually think that the fact that this is ambiguous is an act of grace for us. The fact that Paul doesn't come out and name the thorn is actually a gift to us in the midst of our difficulty. Because the minute that you name something that was once vague, its ability to speak to wide bodies of people vanishes. So, my favorite band of all time would be Jimmy Eat World. And they're my favorite band of all time because they are, in fact, the best band of all time, as all God-fearing Christians would know. 
And if I have to rank the things that I like about Jimmy Eat World, it's, it's going to go first with their lyrics, second with their music, and then what else is there to a band besides that? Um, it's not that the music is bad. I think the music's incredible. I, I try and emulate it in the songs that I write. Uh, but lyrically, the way that, that the singer of that band constructs his prose and the things that he says, he can put out a record at any given point in my life, and somehow I'm going to find a way to relate it to whatever I'm going through. Like, it is, it is specific enough, enough to human experience that I can relate to it, but it's vague enough that it's not so anchored in his personal experience that I write it off. There's, there's one instance that I know of where he's actually explained a song, and it ruined it for me. So it's the, the first song on this record, Clarity. Um, he has this line in it. He says, it happens too fast to make sense of it or make it last, but you lead my skeptic's eye. And when I first heard this, which would have been in high school because I checked the CD out from the library and ripped it to my iTunes, um, and then was really, felt really guilty about it and ultimately bought it, when I, when I first heard it, I thought, this sounds like it's about some sort of a relationship that doesn't last very long. It happens too fast to make sense of it. And maybe one or both parties are just not even sure if it's a good idea. I can kind of relate to that. Even though I'm in high school and nobody will actually date me even if I ask them to, like, I get that. I can feel your angst. And then, and then my friend John told me what it's actually about. It's about him being invited by a friend to an art exhibit and being pretty skeptical of whether or not art is even worth his time and standing out front of the art exhibit and looking at the staircase leading into this exhibit, and this girl walks out, and she walks out with a broom, and she sweeps the dirty steps, the ones that he waited on. If you know the song, this is exactly what he describes. And then she sets up a table, and she puts glasses on it, and she stands there for a second, and makes eye contact with him, packs all the glasses up, packs the table up, walks inside, and starts talking to people about her art piece. And so it was actually this piece of performance art, but it happened too fast for him to make sense of it, or for anybody else to catch it, and he's this art skeptic who's... It killed the song for me. It ruined it. Not that it's not like one of the greatest songs ever written, because it is, along with them being one of the greatest bands ever, but I immediately, the specificity of it detached me from it. And yet, I would imagine that if Paul had specifically said, the thorn in my side is my bad eyesight, everybody with 20-20 vision would go, Oh, that's a bummer, I guess. Or if he had said specifically, the thorn in my flesh is anxiety, everybody who's never dealt with that in any significant way would go, hmm, sounds tough. But Paul doesn't name it. No, Paul only tells us that there is this nameless pain that troubled him, and that is something that everyone can relate to in all places and in all times. But he's pretty specific here that this is something that has been given to him. And yet he also calls it a messenger of Satan. And I don't presume to understand how the whole of this works out. I don't presume to understand the mechanics of this or theologically how these pieces fit together. But it seems as though as Paul reflects on this nameless pain that has so humbled him in the face of the glory that he's experienced, he reflects on it and he says that somehow this has been given to me. God, God has allowed this painful issue to befall me, not ultimately for the purposes of evil, but for my ultimate good. That God has allowed this source of pain to enter into my life, but it is not so that I would be destroyed, but so that I would be better for it. And this is not me interpreting Paul. This is Paul interpreting his own life. 
saying, this is what has happened to me. And you know, as, as I think about that, as I think about that in light of the people's lives in this room, who I know in, in light of my own life, in light of other friends in my life, it seems as though time and time again, there are these times where the Lord allows us to go through seasons of profound difficulty and darkness, and it's only in retrospect, and sometimes not even for decades, that we can look back and say that this was for my good, but it felt like hell. You know, when I first took over the college and career ministry, it would have been in 2014, and I was, was and am a pretty nervous person. Like, my hands aren't going to shake and my palms aren't going to sweat when I talk to strangers, but, but I can worry about things for, for months that don't really have any bearing in reality. I, and I'm a pretty pessimistic person, too. I know you can't tell by my cheery disposition, but I am pretty, pretty pessimistic. And I have a tendency to create doomsday scenarios in my mind. What is the worst possible outcome of the situation in which I find myself? Because I'm pessimistic, the worst possible outcome is probably what's going to happen. That's just how my mind has always worked. I can remember in kindergarten thinking, what's the worst possible thing that could happen to me? I could have my clip moved. And so I would just sit all day and worry about the things that I would do that might get my clip moved. And I wasn't allowed to say the word stupid, and I was like, well, I won't say it, but what if I think it? I'm thinking the word stupid. I probably should tell the teacher, but she's going to move my clip. Like, what do I do? And that's the end of the world for me. And, and then I moved on to, to middle school. And, and in middle school, I didn't really love the middle school I was in. And so the worst case scenario is that I have to stay there for forever. And so I had a freak out about the FCAT. And I was like, well, what happens if I fail the FCAT? And I'm in Progress Village for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm in my math teacher's class having panic attacks. Like, you have to help me pass because the worst thing that could happen to me is this. And on and on and on it goes. 2014, I take over the college and career ministry. And all of these broken bits within me converge in such a way that I was in the midst of probably the darkest season that I've ever experienced. Within like three or four months, it was the darkest thing that I, to this day, have ever lived through. I mean, to the point that I remember sitting in the bed of my apartment with my cat at the foot of the bed and me literally saying to God, please kill me. Like, like if, you're gonna, if this is it forever, kill me. I would rather not wake up tomorrow than you allow this to continue. And I remember the next day or maybe the next few days, sitting at the table of the kitchen, uh, one that so many of you have sat at as we've had conversations about the highs and the lows of, of life in Christ. And I remember saying to God, I, I don't get this. Like, I, I do not understand why you're doing this to me. Couldn't this have happened when I was in college and I didn't have a job and I wasn't leading people and I could sort it through? Couldn't this have happened in high school? Like, why, why now? And, and would you please make it stop? Like, would you please make this stop? And I have never heard the audible voice of God. I won't, I won't pretend that I have. But the closest I've ever gotten to the audible voice of God was on that day, sitting at the table in my kitchen and saying, I need you to make this stop, and him responding much the same as he did to Paul, which was not yet. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in your weakness. It's going to be a while. And it, it was a while. It was probably a, another year before I started to feel normal. And even then, even now, we were three and a half years later, I still walk with a limp. 
There is, there is a depth of darkness that you can descend to that I don't know that you ever fully come back out of this side of eternity. Uh, Paul still has his thorn. I still have a limp from that experience. And yet, the word of God was true for Paul. It was true of me. The grace was sufficient. It carried me through. And so, so I realize there are people in this room right now who Paul's nameless thorn for you has a name in your own life. You read Paul's word here, and, and the vagueness um, for Paul is not vague for you. You can name exactly what it is, and you have asked God to take it away from you, whether it's pain, whether it's bitterness, whether it's a circumstance. I want you to hear, as somebody who has lived through this in, in some way, the words are true. His grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your pain. Whatever the thorn is, his grace is sufficient. Paul, Paul says that he pleaded with the Lord three times that it would be taken away. And God gives his response. The text that Zida read for us during worship wasn't just a random interesting story about Jesus. Jesus himself in the garden goes before the Father on the eve of his crucifixion and says three times, take this away from me. Let this hour pass. And yet, the silence of the Father is the very fountain from which the grace of God flows towards Paul in his own darkness. It is because Christ has been afflicted and the cup did not pass from him that he can carry Paul now in the midst of his affliction. And Paul comes to this text. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And this is easy to miss in the English. That's why Paul didn't write in English. The language that he uses here is the same language that's mirrored throughout the Old Testament to describe the power of God inhabiting the tabernacle in the, in the presence of the people of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. The power of God rests on me, just like it inhabited the tabernacle. It's the same sort of language that John uses to describe in his opening prologue that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is this abiding presence of God among his people. And Paul says that it's in the midst of his weakness that the power of God rests most strongly on him. So, so don't miss what he's saying by pulling on all these biblical images. He's saying here that God takes up residence not among the strong, but among the weak. Not among the powerful, but among the lowly. Not among the well-off, but among the afflicted. And so you who are here and now in the midst of whatever your thorns your experiences might be beset by whatever darkness now covers you. I need you to know that God has not abandoned you to that. He's not even abandoned you in the midst of it, but he rests on you in a real and significant way. And he still holds out this promise that he made to Paul that his grace is sufficient to carry you through. And his power is perfected in your weakness.